0: You deserve more. Man. You deserve more. than a baby you can have it. You deserve more for all they put you through. You deserve more than promises of magic. You deserve more than that's just what we do. You deserve more. You deserve more. More, more. You deserve more. You deserve deserve more. You deserve more. You can have it. You deserve more for all they put you through. You deserve more than promises of magic. You deserve more than that's just what we do. You deserve more than you deserve more, more You deserve more than promises. Magic. Just what we do.
1: Welcome, everybody, and thank you for coming out to the weekly spaces for Skybrook. Uh, today we have a very special spaces. This week, we're focusing on venture capital and raising funds. Um, I think this is especially timely this week after we just had uh, one of the larger influencers show why it's so important to be especially cautious with raising money. Um, the big thing that I think about here is so many people in the Web3 or NFT ecosystem are not very nuanced on how to raise funding, that it feels like there's a singular correct way to do it. And the reality is there are many ways in which to do it. Um, But you have to do it in a way that is both legal and also a way that is respectful of your investors. And I think this is a really important caveat to put into things. Beyond that, I want to take just a quick minute before we get into the speakers and uh, make sure to kind of talk a little bit about what's going on in the ecosystem today. So as a quick recap of what's happening for the week, we're getting a lot of buy pressure that comes in on things that are like the Yuga assets. So those are kind of ramping up. We're seeing another other side journey coming in. And I tend to think of Yuga operating almost like Bitcoin operates with uh crypto but for nfts that being said um we've got that coming in we have an airdrop at some point coming in for blur and then we also have digidaigaku is going to be doing a super bowl ad So you've got three things that are happening concurrently and those three things that are happening um i think are going to put a little bit of buy pressure on the market that being said it, you have to be pretty cautious of what happens when the music stops on those it, so um that's really where my head is at right now is looking at we're going to have buy pressure we're going to have a positive momentum going you guys really ramping up everything they're doing in a systemic and thoughtful manner dookie dash it, as a game i feel like was executed at a very very high level it, um And then beyond that, what we're just looking at is how this all plays out into the overall greater ecosystem. How does this affect not just the people that are in Web3 today, but the people that are going to be moving into this ecosystem? I've got three speakers here and I'm gonna let them all introduce themselves. But the general subject that we're gonna be having here today is going to be focused really on what you should be looking for in raising funds what venture capitalists and investors are looking at when they're investing, and then how you should go about interactions with people. So it, starting with Joe Hipsky, Joe and I have probably been friends for five to 10 years. I watched him do his startup IRA Logics. He's one of the co-founders. And I watched him set out and raise about 45 to $50 million in VC funding. And he did it in a very thoughtful manner. It's been a multi-year journey. And just recently in the past year or two, he's really seen a lot of success. So it feels like overnight success, but seeing behind the scenes, he's done an incredible amount of work. Uh, Mike, or Mikael, uh, he runs a $250 million private equity fund. He's also an alumni of Y Combinator. I've known Mike for maybe five years, give or take. Uh, Met him when he was a speaker at Microsoft New York, talking about what he looks for and venture funding and then uh mike dudas who was up on stage and just got kicked off for a second he, uh, he there he is he's back uh let me put him as a speaker again uh mike and i mike dudas and i are just starting to get to know each other but i've watched what he's done with six man ventures he's also active in the web three space but i'll just let uh, each one of these uh people introduce themselves we'll start with joe and then we'll go joe mikhail and then mike dudas joe go ahead
2: yeah thanks josh um yeah, real, real briefly. My my background. I've been in and around early stage and growth companies for the past twenty years. a Couple stops at large financial institutions. So my background's primarily B two B enterprise technology with a with a heavy fintech bent.
1: Nice. Um, I appreciate that, uh, Mikhail. I'll go to you.
3: <clears throat> hey, testing. Uh, can you hear me?
1: Yeah, yeah, I can hear you well.
3: All right, great. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. It's, uh, you know, it's a pleasure to be on again. Um, I have to say, like, I'm, I'm very excited to see what you've done with the place since I was here last time. It's been what, like a month ago, maybe two. I don't know. Time flies these days. But um, by way of background, real quick, I'm an electrical uh, engineer, sort of by background. Um, so never was really like professionally finance guy. Um, Started a couple of companies back in like early 2000s. One of them, the first one was part of the first Y Combinator class, which is um, actually really like been recently relevant because one of the other guys um, from that class recently um, just got an infusion of capital for Microsoft to the tune of like 10 billion. um, And he's been making splashes with his latest startup called OpenAI. Um, which is, um, you know, this is something we can get into, um, in this conversation if you guys want. I know it's not super relevant to NFTs necessarily, but it is relevant to fundraising because his first startup, the one that, um, he got accepted into the first class of Y Combinator along with us and Reddit and a couple of other guys, um, was a pretty big failure actually. Um, so I'm very very excited and I, I, you know he was always a smart guy it's just you know stuff doesn't necessarily work out as planned right but i'm very glad to see him um persevere and sort of um you know become pretty accomplished down the line with his i guess third startup at this point um but we can revisit that um like in the future if, if there's interest um so yeah i did those startups for a couple um couple of years actually a little longer um and then uh, got into finance, so I've been running, you know, my funds. Um, we have like two main funds, right? Now. Well, one main fund and one got got spin-off um, a few years ago. Um, combined um, AUM about $250 million, doing a lot of stuff in capital markets, um, kind of mostly financing uh, directly public companies, uh, private companies looking to go public or publicly traded companies are you know looking for like acquisition capital Uh, so a lot of structure finance i would say like that's bread and butter of our business and also real estate so that's uh i'll leave it at that no
1: that's awesome i i definitely do want to come back and touch on the open ai because that's probably the biggest story in the world right now it's changing things at a scale that's incredibly large uh mike dudas love to hear about your background
4: yeah so um you know i like to say i'm a rising boomer uh i have like a about a two decade career first decade was primarily in media started my career at disney uh worked at a startup um in the online music space in the late zero zeros and then ended up at youtube and then last decade um spent time at google and google wallet uh and then at braintree and venmo and then since 2014 so almost 10 years now you have been starting companies um one in the Web 2 space, a mobile commerce company, uh, and then starting in 20 late 2017, beginning of 2018, moved into crypto full time. Have been in the space since as both an entrepreneur and investor. Started a company called The Block, which is a crypto media and research uh, company. Started, um, uh, as you mentioned, a Web 3 project called Links, which is a basically an NFT-enabled um, global golf community, um, where the NFTX is a membership pass, you know, governance pass, we can talk about that if we have time. Uh, and then my you know, full-time job, what I spend all my time on is um, six-hand ventures. So investing in uh, early-stage companies in the crypto space, primarily applications uh, and infrastructure, so consumer and business application infrastructure. Um, you know, what that means is we don't invest in layer ones like Ethereum or Solana, but in the applications built on top of them, uh, and the tooling uh, that enables those applications to be built. Um, Having a lot of fun, and it's a really, really exciting time to be investing right now uh, because we just went through another you know call it really big cycle that brought in incredible people where we saw lots of success but also lots of failure and we're seeing a number of entrepreneurs who are at really interesting companies but have moved on uh, who are looking to do things better uh, this cycle both in terms of centralized financial infrastructure but more excitingly to me uh, in terms of like truly decentralized on-chain stuff both financial and non-financial so exciting times
1: Awesome. Uh, Just for everyone really quick, my background, I've been a serial entrepreneur for maybe 10 plus years, 20 years, more like it. Uh, Last startup, I raised about $7 million for my seed round of a co-working space in New York City. We were pretty successful um, by almost any measure, like featured in magazines, profitable, good margins. COVID hit, we went bankrupt. Uh, There's no two ways about it. It lost all the money. Uh, You know, it I think Industrious ended up taking over our space, which is a larger co-working company. But I wouldn't really call it an acquisition. It was really just a shutdown. Um, But that being said, I do have a decent amount of experience from raising an early round with a company. Prior to that, I had been recruited by a venture capital firm to help offload a fuel additive company in Houston that was on their books. I think they put about $40 in. So from my background, I've kind of done like a bootstrap startup uh kind of seen what can happen if a company gets a little bit stale or gets into like almost a zombie mode as a invested company and how it needs to be offloaded and then i uh, raised my own capital so it really quick uh for the three people up on stage it, the question i have for all of you and you know anyone's welcome to answer it, but if somebody is stepping into web three and they're doing an nft company i'm not going to call it a project it, what is something that somebody should be thinking about what are some markers that people should be looking for when they're trying to decide if they should raise venture funding or whether they should just kind of bootstrap it themselves uh, I, I think i'm going to ask mike dudas this just because it, this is really where your full focus is, and it feels like it, you've got an expertise here. I mean, everyone has an expertise here, but what what do you think is a differentiating factor it, between a company that should raise funding and a company that should be bootstrapping?
4: Yeah, good question. And I think, you know, you'll, you can ask 10 VCs and you'll get 10 different answers. Um, so uh, I'll just give, you know, our perspective. So we uh, at 6M Ventures... Um, it's a fairly sizable fund and we have over 100 portfolio companies and what you'll find in our portfolio despite it being very very concentrated and in quote unquote web 3 and you know NFT related companies is that we haven't invested directly into many NFT what you would call projects right so you know the call it Pudgy Penguins and the Day Gods and the board Ape yacht Clubs. And look, you know, some of them because they're way later stage than where we invest. But in general, um, our philosophy as a fund has been not to invest in those, um, what I would call like, you know, the NFT drop or the NFT and the community comes before the actual uh, product has been built. Um, and, and the reason is, so, so I think companies like that, um, you know if you can if if your focus is to start by issuing NFTs and then sort of like figuring out what the perhaps utility or the, the ultimate product will be afterwards, one, venture capital is probably not the right thing to raise very early on. It's very dilutive relative to going out and if you can successfully sell an NFT, it's non-dilutive capital, right? So I'd like recommend if you know that's your, that your path is to you know get a community going and generate you know revenue first. You can do that in a non dilutive way. Um, so, you know the the and, and the benefits are again non dilutive. The downside is you know the community often feels like they're owners depending on how you market it and you know that you have an obligation to them. Uh, the companies that we get excited about and that we do invest in are companies building call it like uh, enabling technologies or platforms. Uh, and where there's a you know likelihood, in the long run, of there being a you know, recurring and/or predictable, you know, revenue and business model, right? That's like what venture capital firms have historically backed, and it's a model we understand. So, you know, we we are pretty heavy, for example, into call it you know social wallets, right? Things like Floor and a company called Symbol C Y M B A L, things like marketplaces like Super Rare and Rareable and Magic Eden. Those are things that we invest in because we can understand, you know, what the business model is. You know, for the marketplaces, it's transaction fees and/or you know, platform or launchpad fees for the wallets. Over time, it could be advertising revenue. It could be actual transaction fees if they add transaction functionality. So I think you just have to really be honest with yourself about whether you're building, kind of like a media and you know gaming company, and and the NFT is content versus if you're you know, building something where, you know, basically you're uh, NFT enabling technology. Another example could be like, you know, uh, Form 3, we're not involved in it, but they're enabling Starbucks loyalty program, and they're likely going to do that for other companies. To me, that's a little bit of a, they're more of a platform company, and you can understand why venture capital funding makes sense for them. So I'll pause, you know, before I drone on for 15 minutes.
1: No, I appreciate that. Uh, I do want to pass it to Mikael and Joe. Uh, when And I'll kind of open the question up a little bit broader because for everyone listening, Mikael and Joe are uh, involved in funding, but they're coming from outside of our space. And I think it's so wildly important that we hear divergent perspectives because... A lot of things that are going on in Web3 are good. A lot are really trash. Um, And to touch on one of the things that Mike Dudas just said uh, that I think is very important, and this is one of the things I found when consulting with a lot of my law firms, is um, if you are raising non-dilutive funding uh, for a company that hasn't yet been built uh, with Web3 and NFTs, there's a chance that that looks like an equity funding round and if you don't have a full product built you get into a legally gray area i'm not offering any legal advice i'm not a, i'm not a lawyer i have a law degree but i'm not a lawyer and i'm not your lawyer so it's good to block that out but i do know that if you're just dropping an nft on a promise and you're raising a lot of capital it, um it's ambiguous how the courts might react that's a that really happens. good and so, critical
4: point. And look, I've experienced that, obviously, with Lynx. With Lynx, we had a very specific set of legal disclaimers, a very specific set of what the NFT uh, would enable You know, prior to launch. I do think that, to your point, a number of, you know, call it NFT issuers and sellers are going to run into a lot of problems if they're promising, you know, vague utility and selling things to people that can be traded openly um, but without, you know, specificity and or the proper legal disclosure. So, yeah, definitely, if you're thinking about launching an NFT project in that way and it's not pure art, you have to talk to a lawyer, maybe more than one.
1: Yeah, and that's really important because it also what Mike Duda said, that I think, is in incredibly critical, is talking to more than one lawyer. So I have one law firm that I talk to, and they're a very, very large firm, like multinational, and they're conservative. And they're like, fuck no, do not ever do A, B, and C. Uh, You might talk to a firm that is a little bit more aggressive, like maybe a Fenwick and West, and they might have a different perspective for you. And the key to this is realizing that intelligent people can view this in different ways, but you need to understand what your theoretical risk is so that you know how much risk you want to take legally. So for, you know, for Skybrook, uh, I erred on the side of High level of caution. This is a free NFT, so I didn't charge anyone anything for it. So it would be hard to imagine that it would fall under a legally gray area. But um, you know, people think different things. Joe Hipsky, I'll go to you, and then we'll go to Mike.
2: Yeah, sure. So um, to, I'll kind of echo what Mike said, but say it a little differently. Um, and you'll notice the theme of you know Mike's investments, as I'm picking up on it, is they solve a problem. They solve a commercial problem today. Um, and and that, that, that's your path to get towards realizing your future. And we've seen this movie before, from you know web one to Web 2. Um, though you know for those who were around in, in the late 90s, you, you saw the same thing. You had piles upon piles upon piles of cash being dumped into companies that had no clear purpose or objective. Um, most of them got evaporated. Um, those that found that path to commercialization have created what we have today. You know, that, that case in point is Amazon. Jeff Bezos is not one of the wealthiest guys in the world because he figured out how to get shit to your front door quickly. He did that by selling the infrastructure and creating Web2. Most companies today would not exist if not for the commercialization of the cloud my company included so he started off amazon sold books it was a need it was a way to prove out the technology underlying so in looking at where we're going today um i don't think you know core financial services is anywhere near ready um i i think your 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 best bet is in the gaming world it is in the out Outskirts of financials, or you know, more kind of retail-focused applications, um, simply because you know what runs the financial world is archaic, uh, and and that's too too big of a leap too quick to expect anything differently. Um, so, th- you know, I, I I would you know echo what Mike just said, you know, and and you know said differently.
1: Awesome. I think that's really smart. And the Amazon analogy is is a good analogy, right? Because people get very caught up in the idea that there's a correct way to do things, and it feels very comfortable. Like, it's comfortable to assume... It, that there is a right way and there is a wrong way to do things. It, um, when reality, there may be many, many, many right ways to do something and many, many it, wrong ways to do something. I'm going to pass it to Mikael. It, but while I pass it to Mikael, I'd love it for uh, anyone that has any questions for the speakers. If you want to raise your hand after uh, we hit about the 12, 1030 mark, it, going to start uh, taking questions from the audience. So hey, anybody that's interested, uh, feel free to raise your hand. Mike or Mikael, I'll go to you.
3: Yeah, I mean, the other guys made some good points. Um, There's there's so much money slashing around, Um, you know, still, right? That's why we're seeing the Fed do what what they're doing. Um, You know, as far as the capitalizing the trends, um, you know, one... So, yeah, yeah, the Amazon uh, example is pretty good. Um, You know, one thing that I've observed recently, and there's there's definitely not just one way to do it, Um, but I would sort of flip it on the other hand and say, it's also got, you got to also be careful chasing trends. And I'll give you an example. I saw recently um, a deck um, from a sort of first time VC fund that um, I think like 19 out of 20 slides in that deck was how diverse their team is uh, at the fund level. And there was one slide on the performance uh, of like some of the investments they've done in the past, but the way they disclosed it, it didn't really make sense because they were comparing like different timeframes and, you know, different sort of metrics. Uh, so on that basis alone, you know, we, we obviously passed because they're making sense uh, from a diligence point of view, but, um, you know, honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if some, you know, institutions invest in stuff like this without sort of even... Um, any kind of performance guidance because of the current sort of um, laws that are being put in place about driving the like pension fund money and all of that. Um, So the, the point that I'm making is like, there's some opportunities out there to kind of chase the latest trends that are happening, you know, based on regulation, based on a lot of these things that are going on sort of at the very high level of finance. Right, driven by the government, the pension funds, institutional money—that's where most of the money is, really, in the financial system. Right, if you think about it. Um, but on the other hand, you also want to do the right—you know—do it right. You can't just like completely take advantage because at some point you're going to get sort of called out on that. Um, so that's kind of one way to think about it. Uh, but yeah, I agree with the other guys. I think everyone made some good points here. Is my mic on so I can speak, or is that incorrect?
1: Uh, it, Peter, you're gonna have to wait to be called on. Uh, you'll be able to speak, but I think SK three six nine was the first. I apologize, I misunderstood. Mute. My apologies. No, no worries, no worries, no problem at all. Um, with that being said, uh, Mikhail, I, I agree with you. I think the larger assets are in the pension funds or in these bigger funds. I, I don't think we're there in Web three. Like I think, it, and you know, maybe uh, Dudas could correct me on this if he thinks differently. But I think it, we're kind of early in this where it's almost too early to have people be focused on like big money coming into the space. The entire Web3 ecosystem is a trillion dollars, so it's not a huge amount of capital that's in the entire space. But I'm a very big believer that NFTs are going to be a gateway into cryptocurrency As a larger asset class. And the reason I think this is ETH for the first time is the settlement layer of the currency, meaning that NFTs are denominated in Ethereum, not U.S. dollars. We've seen transactions occur with Bitcoin, with ETH, with other uh, cryptocurrencies, Dogecoin uh, as well. But all of the transactions have always been denominated in U.S. dollars. So for a limited time, you could have bought a Tesla with Bitcoin, but the price of Tesla was always going to be $50,000 or $70,000, and you were just going to use Bitcoin to do it. By having Ethereum be the settlement layer, meaning that we measure the value of NFTs in Ethereum, it does something very special from a psychological phenomenon where at that point in time, it, you're able to start thinking in ETH. And so $10,000 is a lot of money. 10 ETH doesn't feel like as much money because it's a psychological phenomenon that casinos have figured out for decades, that you're more willing to spend money if you have a $10,000 chip than if you had a stack of $10,000 in your hand. It, it's a very subtle but very important inflection point. I do wanna open it up to the speakers, which I said, SK369, uh, what is your question and how can we help you?
5: Thank you so much, Josh. I really appreciate you bringing these amazing speakers on today. Uh, Great topic. Uh, I actually have the honor of representing several different entities as an introducer. I'm here in Boca Raton, Florida, and some of my main connections are in Miami, out of Miami. Um, specifically, I have a question for you regarding uh, all of the speakers today. Are you actually open to uh, introduction emails or?
6: Can't hear
1: them. Are you there? Yeah, I can I can hear you fine. Uh, Peter, uh, appreciate it, but I, I can hear you fine, SK.
5: Oh, okay. So I just wanted to ask: Are are the three speakers open to introductory emails or introductory uh, Zooms or conversations? The reason why I ask is because I am working on a project with an amazing uh, chemical engineer and nanoscientist, Dr. Mark Lane. Uh, he has created an AI to AI nano optic technology. That is definitely non binary
1: and it's uh, going to be. SK, really quick, I, I don't mean to cut you off here, but we, we don't wanna actually like pitch an actual project. It, um, but you did ask if they're open introductions. It, but is there a question beyond that, beyond kind of it, talking about the specific project that you have that you have for the speakers or yeah, something? Yeah, thank you, Josh. Okay, thank you,
5: great. Josh. So the question would be is number one, are you open to uh, really serious introductions? And then number two, uh, the question would be, you know, obviously I'm reading a lot where many VCs and PEs um, have moved away sort of like from crypto and Web3 and are interested more in the AI technology and underlying technology due to all of the, you know, obviously exuberance happening from chat GPT. So those would be my two questions. Do you think that the time is now really to strike why the iron is hot on some of these uh, projects that I have going on? And are you open to it?
4: Yeah. So I'll answer with like a little bit of a framework. Um, So obviously, you know, any VC uh, who's in, call it, you know, the top kind of like echelon, meaning sees a significant amount of deal flow, you know, has top investments and good performance, probably is getting you know, more introductions than they could ever, uh, and more, you know, inbound than they could ever reasonably respond to, you know, in a thoughtful, you know, caring way. So, you know, the way that we look at it is um, if the introduction comes from a trusted party, meaning somebody we've done business with before, uh, you know, it could be, uh, an LP, meaning a limited partner investor in our fund, it could be, and this is often one of the best, you know, a founder that's already in our portfolio. Uh, it could be somebody who we've co-invested with, another investment firm, or somebody we've worked with or know well um, to be an expert in the industry. Um, those are the signals. So if you're, a, you know, if you're starting a company or you have a company and you're looking to get in touch, with a VC, you know, you definitely want to do it through somebody who's in their network and is trusted because the cold inbound has a really low probability of working. Um, and I think most VCs, you know, in as a debt and obligation um, to their existing portfolio companies just can't take the time to take, you know, a bunch of cold meetings on a regular basis. So, yeah, warm intros are the best, too. Your second question, you know, us. Our firm specifically, we're not an AI firm, you know, we raised and we have a specific mandate that people invested in us um, to deploy capital into crypto companies. Now, to the extent that the companies were invested in, you know, use machine learning, uh, you know, you have some you know, aspect of you know artificial intelligence that enhances their products. Well sure, you know, we'll have exposure to it, but it's just not a discrete, specific theme that we're call it actively, you know, chasing, nor, you know, have uh, explicit, you know, investor desire in our investors to invest in and
2: That's- if I could uh, cover that from the, the the other side of the fence from the, the those raising funds from from Folks like Mike, um, I've relied exclusively on warm intros, um, zero cold outreach because of what Mike just said. It, it you know, it's very unlikely, very low probability. And that works in reverse too. Many of those, many funds, even the largest have, you know, to, uh, you know, legions of people doing cold outreach. I have done one deal um, that generated with that. However, it wasn't you know a templatized email it was within the first sentence i could tell that you know that person knew actually knew something about my business um but yeah it, it comes from a you know trusted source which is from the entrepreneur side of things um even if you have no network you can start by working with service providers that are truly actually in that industry you know particularly attorneys um there are t- attorneys who do nothing but this they're well known by all the funds and you know can make those introductions and they are trusted uh sources to to those funds um you know frankly any any lawyer who passed a bar could pu- uh parse a contract that's not what y- that's not why you should select a firm it's my my take on it
1: one one thing i want to be really thoughtful of sk is that you are being legally compliant. And this is a really important thing because there is like a licensed broker-dealer, you know, license that people have that go out and solicit funds for other people. That's oftentimes what investment bankers do. So I would be incredibly cautious if I'm you and definitely speak with an attorney or a competent law firm and let them know what you're up to as quote an introducer like i think it's wonderful that you're helping companies out but at the same time like you have to realize if you help a company out and you're a non-licensed broker dealer and your remuneration comes as a percentage of their funding um, you may end up having some legal liability on that at some level if you're not being legally compliant i think this is a really important caveat that a lot of people may be missing is it, there are very specific laws and guidelines for things and it's really okay to do almost anything if things go well <laughs> it, but what happens is when things don't go well and most of the time in startups they don't it's like 70 80 percent failure rate when things don't go well people go to the lawyers people go to reclaim their money people
4: go in- yeah i can i just interject i think like look this is where angel investors and folks like that with like really big reputations things like accelerators you know as as you know we talked about earlier you know good legal representation folks like that can be really helpful i mean that's that's the best way but yeah i i know i know there's been increasingly in crypto an increase in what you just talked about like deal platforms and folks who are you know trying to put deals together you know we saw this during the ico era of 2018 17, 18. I mean, it's just a, it's a risky thing. Go to trusted parties.
2: Yeah. I was just going to say to put that in a small box for, for folks here, there's two people who are allowed to legally work on a, on a contingency basis like that. Someone with a registered broker dealer or the principal of the, the, the firm who's raising the capital. So former series seven, 79, all that. Um, Josh is correct on that.
5: Yeah, um, Uh, I just did want to mention to everybody here, I have applied for my Florida solicitor's license. So here in Florida, um, all I need is a solicitor's license. It's definitely not the same as like Texas or New York where you have to have an introducer's license. And then also now it all makes sense to me. The reason why I've gotten as far as I've gotten is because my contact in Florida, in Miami, is the managing partner of a VC firm who I've known for 20 years. So now I understand that it's because of that 20-year relationship that I had the warm introduction in the first place. So now, and I really, really genuinely appreciate the feedback um, everything that you've said so far was Excellent. And it has helped me tremendously. So I will get him, his name's Bo Meganson out of Miami. I will get him uh, the research and then I'll have him reach out.
1: Great. Um, We're going to move on to the next speaker. SK, thank you so much. Love that you're out here trying to move the Web3 space forward. I do think that it's a very valuable service. Just always want to make sure that you're legally protected on things. And, you know, I may be overly cautious with it, but that's my take. I do want to move to Peter. And then I think up next, we have Chan. Peter, are you there? All right, Peter uh, is not there. Chan, we're going to go to you.
7: Hey, how's it going, Josh? Thanks for bringing me up, um, and and Mike, Joe, and and Michael. Uh, thanks for for joining us today. I guess you know, as someone, my my question for you is, someone that's you know early on in their career, I feel like venture you traditionally almost stumble into just either based on being a founder from the beginning and kind of building your network that way, or you know, sort of you know, by the luck of the draw, ending up sort of in the position that you aren't able to broker some of these deals or, or be on the side to actually create them. Um, and specifically for someone that's, that's really interested in the the web three space and sort of transitioning their career into that, that way and being very interested in, in venture and sort of the entire, uh, you know, portfolio of companies that are, that are continuing to, to fund some of the next companies that are going to change the world. What, what would you say to someone sort of at the beginning of their career looking to, to get involved in the venture space or just, say, the Web3 investing space in general?
4: Yeah, so, um, so crypto is incredible. Um, I like to say that w- we like to invest in areas where there are no experts. Uh, and the beauty of, quote unquote, Web3 crypto is that, like, we're so nascent, so early, there really aren't experts in, in virtually anything, you know, other than things that maybe are fully, you know, are, are very ossified. Um, and so, where all the innovation is happening is just like in completely new areas where ninety-five percent of people think, uh, "Hey, that's not going to work." Which, which frankly, is a is a wonderful asymmetric upside area, particularly given earlier what Josh said about the you know the fact that the entire asset class is worth less than one trillion dollars, and a lot of that's in Bitcoin, which isn't you know today a robust smart contract platform at l1 or l2 although i know that's starting to perhaps change at l2 all that is to say uh the i'm like on the older end of crypto vcs i'm in my early 40s um in traditional vc i'd be like young or (laughs) in the in the start of my you know partner level career in in crypto i'm I'm on the old side and uh, many of the best vcs um in the entire ecosystem um started with very little money you know less than five years ago you know 10 15 20 million dollar funds you know folks like one confirmation framework you know there's a whole bunch of you know, multi-coin a bunch of others that now are really really significant um you know considered some of the best in the world investors have invested in the best projects uh so the way that these folks did it is, dude, they loved what they did. Like, I don't know all of them deeply and personally well, but I've observed them. And like, they go wildly, wildly deep um, in research and participating in the networks and helping founders, their entrepreneurs themselves. They literally wrote the playbook for what it means to be a VC in crypto, where you have to be both a private investor and a liquid trader, um, because you're getting tokens. So, you know, it's, it's literally like the Wild West in a really, really exciting, wonderful way. And you just have to live, breathe, and love it. Best way to do that is to start with one, two, or three things. You know, call them projects that you just look at and you say, heck, that is so interesting. I can't stop thinking about it. And just dive in. Dive into the docs, the discords, the governance calls, you name it, um, and good things will happen. I saw this time and time again. Um, that's the best generic advice I can give.
1: Awesome. Um, one of the things I do want to give a little bit of space for, Mikhail, you were talking a little bit about chat GBT and you were in the founding class with Y Combinator. I do want to give you a chance to talk a little bit more about that, even though it's not fully into crypto. I think it's important to be discussing this because things go in waves, right? Like crypto is very, very hot for a minute. It's not quite as hot now. Right now, like everything is chat AI, like that seems very hot. Love to hear your take on that.
3: <clears throat> yeah, sure. Um, so, you know, one point I would say to the previous question, actually, because um, it's relevant is, well, they actually took up two things. One is, you know, might actually s- summarized that very well, um, in terms of like what, you know, general advice, what you need to do in order to be successful, I would just call it getting your hands dirty. That's really the, you know, what it comes down to it, just diving in, getting your hands dirty, figuring stuff out. Um, the worst thing to do is try to go collect some money. From people, you know, investing in stuff. I I call those guys basement VCs. You know, no experience. uh, You know, don't know anything. You're chasing latest trends. So you want to avoid being a basement VC. Uh, The best way to do it is getting your hands dirty, going out, figuring some stuff, Um, working on problems that you see for yourself. That's, you know, I would say like by percentage of um, successful businesses and startups, you know, that we I've invested in, you know, at this point, you know, probably over a 1000 companies. um, And just be, you know, just seeing kind of development in, you know, with my own eyes, I would say the, the highest percentage has really been by entrepreneurs that started companies um, solving problems that they've experienced themselves. So like another, um, so this guy wasn't in the first class of YC, I think he was in the third one. Um, His name is Drew Houston. Um, some of you might know him because he started Dropbox, uh, before he started Dropbox, you know, I was sitting down, um, having lunch with him and he was complaining to me how he had like all these computers and he couldn't move files around, you know? Um, so he had this issue, like there was a bunch of solutions out there, like Microsoft X drive, which no one remembers, but he came up with a solution for his problem that worked for him. And now, you know, Dropbox is ubiquitous. So there's just one example, but there's so many. So like the best way to get into this space is trying to solve problems that you have or other people have and getting your hands dirty. doesn't mean necessarily you need to become an engineer or a programmer, but honestly, there's so many high level tools that are available now that have not been available, you know, 10, 20 years ago, right? Even, even you know, when I kind of, was like 2005, right, when I started my first company, we didn't have so many high level higher level languages that w- that we have now and like libraries that you can optimize and build on top of jQuery didn't exist like Ajax just came around for you, for those you know that familiar with that that's you know synchronous JavaScript right the technology that allows you to build um, applications without refreshing the the like the web page so that that was like an incredible sort of step forward right but uh, part of that first class um you know, talking about fundraising and Sam and, um, you know, so I'm talking about Sam Maltin, obviously. So his first startup, I was called Looped. I remember he was walking around. So talking about problems, right? Um, Actually, to that point, slightly digressing, um, many projects in the NFT space, Web3, feel like they're solutions in search of a problem, which is sort of the opposite approach, right? You want to have. First, you want to have a problem and come up with a solution to it. Um, And I think that's kind of how you know, at least other VCs that I speak with also feel about the space. And there's just so much noise that it just drowns out the signal. Um, But, you know, going back to this point, like almost 20 years ago, um, in the first class of YC, uh, Samurai used to walk around with like 50 phones in his pocket. I mean, not 50, like it was at least eight or nine. Um, And the whole idea was to basically, this was before iPhone, to take... um, you know, regular phones and build basically a program that was, like, analogous to Foursquare, if you think about it, like tracking people. How do you track people without GPS on their phones, right? How do you track friends and, you know, or even your kids? So, the you know, this was a little bit of a new thing that they've been developing and a problem they were trying to come up with a solution for. So he basically wrote this like mini servers based on, I think it was Java at the time, um, hosted on phones using triangulation techniques to pin, pinpoint, um, you know, locations of these devices. Um, and loop was born. I think they raised something like 40 million. Um, b- in big part, because obviously he was pretty plugged in and uh, like i in there at that point, I think it was a couple of years into it. Um, but I th- I'm pretty sure it was sort of a giant failure, you know, lost, you know, $40 million for investors, uh, which seems like, you know, in hindsight, was a really good opportunity to learn for him. Um, and, you know, one hallmark that separates in, uh, you know, failures from successful people, and you know, I'll give like, a, one very good example is Elon Musk, obviously, who also happens to be an investor in OpenAI. AI is perseverance. So this guy didn't give up, right, he persevered, and he continued working on stuff that he likes or loves, you know, technology and developing um, solutions to different problems. And, uh, you know, now we're talking about chat GPT valued at you know, some crazy number, like 40 billion, I think, if you look at the user growth, they've posted some, some some ridiculous numbers in terms of like adoption rates, Um, like one of the highest, if not the highest, by that measure in uh, sort of modern history of startups. Um, You know, so I can pause there and kind of go into any specifics but um you know i would out of all of that i would highlight you know if you want to be a successful entrepreneur or just successful in anything perseverance is is the name of the game no matter how many times you fail
1: i think that's a really important point and the part of it that i see that's missing in so many entrepreneurs is they're excited to raise capital as if that capital raise was the finish line rather than the starting gate. Um, As an entrepreneur, I've seen firsthand that when you're running a company, you will always run into hard times. You will always get to a place where the success or failure of your company will be 100% dependent on you as the CEO, co-founder, and your willingness to dig in and work harder than ninety nine point nine percent of people would in that same position. Like you, you watch Elon Musk, and you know, just from a perseverance standpoint, this is a guy who was sleeping on the factory floor or sleeping in the factory of Tesla. Uh, and so the reason I say this is, as a founder, you have to have a real problem, like Mikhail said. And you also need to be very thoughtful of the idea that you are enjoying and you're passionate about what you're building. Because if you don't really love it, there's going to reach a point in time where the money's not there and you know, you're just working insane hours and it will wear you down. But if you love that and you love the process you're gonna be able to put in those 16, 18 hour days, day in, day out, week in, week out, year in, year out, but it won't necessarily feel like work. Um, I'm gonna move the question to Magic and then we will go to Mac.
8: Hi, Josh,
7: thank you for having me. I love the love the panel. Um, I have uh, two questions about um, raising uh, venture capital and, uh, and the venture capital image itself. Uh, so the first question is what what are the main mistakes uh, web3 builders are making when when we are when they are looking for for venture capitals? And uh, my second question is: What are your perspective about VC uh, image in web3, uh, especially from a, a retail perspective? Is it uh, is it uh, does it have an impact on the business side? Is it a frame? So...
1: So let, let me just make sure I understand your question. The second question, the first question is, what are mistakes do founders make when raising funds? And the second question is, what is the image in Web three? Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. Okay, uh, I'll pass that to the three speakers. Anyone who wants to take that,
2: I could jump in on. I could jump in on some of the mistakes um, I've made and I've seen. Um, one one mistake is. You know, treating it as an event versus a um, an ongoing process. Once you get into it, you're going to – the very few companies just raise once and they're done. So you, to be effective at it, you have to constantly be talking to the next next group of investors. First of all, understanding where they are, where you are in your cycle – and, and making sure you're speaking to the correct audience you could or put more simply entrepreneurs waste a lot of time trying to sell somebody that's never going to invest in them at this point or maybe ever um that's one huge huge mistake that i see repeated all the other uh, all the time another another big one is uh, overly reliance on a deck i mean you know, you, you send a deck, it could be very flashy. If you, you forward it to someone and, it, and they open it up and see, you know, one of 30 in the slide count, they throw it in the garbage. They don't even read it. Um, you know, particularly on the earlier stage when, you know, it, it it's really 80 to 90% um, relationship and the balance supported with some, what data you have plus a uh, reasonable reasonably believable story in and around what will happen because everyone knows it's wrong. Um, that, that means they need to believe you're the one that's going to do it. So one, they have to believe what you're trying to pull off. Isn't nuts. And more importantly, once you get them over that hurdle that you're the people or person to do it. So, you know, you're selling you at that point. Um, I, I've always been decked light, but if you can't explain something simply, uh, you probably don't know it well enough to raise money.
1: It's a great way of saying things. Mikhail, I know you wanted to chime in and touch on this.
3: Yeah, um, it's actually a good question. Um, you know, what are the red flags that we look? Um, the big one is being all in. If you're an entrepreneur pitching your startup, that means you're living and breathing this thing. If you have like 50 other things going on and you're not in it 100%, Uh, it's probably going in the trash. Uh, So that is probably like 90% of, you know, things that get thrown out, just not being all in. Um, The other red flag, you know, someone said, you know, deck's too big, too much noise, again, too much noise, right? Think of like noise and signal ratio. You want to have a lot of signal, less noise. Um, What are the relevant things you want to convey? But, um, you know, the big one I would say is, you know, just being all in. Um, And you got to build the story around that, right? You're selling the story. So the story needs to convey, you know, obviously it's like, all right, what's the problem? What's the solution? But you got to be all in. And like, honestly, the, uh, you know, one thing to also keep in mind is, you know, especially early in the game, no one is really investing. And like, we're talking about like 99 out of 100 times uh, into the idea necessarily. And it sounds strange, but what you know VCs look for for the most part, and, and you know that has to do with I would say like VC up to like even later stage stuff is really the founder, uh, the founding team because chances are, and again, that happens like I said, ninety nine percent plus percent, um, the actual product or the idea is going to change from the very inception to the end. you know someone mentioned Amazon, right? you know started I think Mike did. started with books ended up with infrastructure, right? Um, and you take like every company that's successful right now, you look at the, what they initially started. Like, you know, t- talk about big companies, right? What did they initially start and what, what was the ending result? What was the end product? It, it, uh, pretty much 99 plus percent, it's different. So, this is something to think about, right? How do you position yourself as an entrepreneur that the VC buys into you? Because that's what they invest in in the end. Can you pivot if the uh, market changes? If your idea becomes. For some reason, you know, you find that it's not as successful. Can you pivot quickly, right? That That is the ability that they're investing in.
4: Yeah, and I would say the one thing that I haven't heard mentioned is just like the a lot of people like misrepresent easily disprovable facts. Like, hey, we have this type of traction, um, put logos on their deck. And like, as soon as the investor diligences it, you know finds that the thing isn't true like that's death so just don't overstate things if you're not ready if you haven't hit milestones you know don't lie uh and you know don't overestimate things it's 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 an immediate you know pass when folks start to find stuff like that out
1: these are great points and one point I'll say from raising is <clears throat> when i moved to new york city in 2016 the amount of money I needed to raise was one of the largest seed rounds in the United States at that point in time. It was around seven million. And one of the things I said to investors that I meant and I executed on was I didn't have a permanent residence in New York. I was staying in Airbnbs. And I said to every investor that wherever we put our first location, I will move within walking distance of that location so I can supervise everything, you know, at any point in time. And this sounds really bizarre, and investors didn't ask me to do this, but I told them if the investment team would prefer to build out a small apartment on premise and it's legal with the co-working space, I would literally live there. Um, the reason I did this was exactly what Mikhail said of I wanted people to know I was all in. Like this was, you know, that was everything to me. It, um, and I think that investors believed that because it was true to me. It was, uh, you know, I was all in. There wasn't anything else. There was, uh, you know, Matt Higgins wrote a book recently, Burn the Boats, I think, or Burn the Ships. It, I had burned the ships. There there was no plan B for me. I think, um, yeah, I think we did a good job with that, even though it ended up failing. But I do want to move on to Mech. Mech, what, uh, what question do you have?
8: Hey Josh, thanks for bringing me up. Um before I get to the question, I just want to let you know I DM'd you. I want to ho- hopefully you're still holding that airdrop for me. <laughs> but um I I wanted to ask something specific because I I've and I guess for, for context, I came into the space in December 2020 from the maker space and I had some ideas around what I wanted to do to kind of like get into content creation that just helped folks who were not like, you know, bearded white guys working in their garages get involved in making things. And I stumbled into um, a crypto art space about 15 days in from moving into this like 3,000, 4,000 square foot space and was completely kind of like caught up in the idea of the smart contract because it would allow me to like not have to use tools like Patreon, like where I can, you know, provide exclusive content. And I just kept digging and this was, you know, early 20, well, late 2020. And so there was a lot of friction. It took me about four months of of literally living in clubhouse spaces um, to, to feel like I understood how to do something here. And in that time, I accomplished a lot. I had 30,000 people follow me. Um, I remember at one point explaining NFTs to Gary V in a clubhouse room with like 8,000 people listening. And, you know, he took a screen capture of my clubhouse profile and tweeted it out February 20 fourth i think of 2021 and so i've had this like really interesting path and i think a lot of what i model and study is the success of white men and i'm i'm starting to well had started to venture into understanding how venture capital works because at a certain point the scale that i'm working at is just so much far beyond what i'm used to about you know the kind of person who taught myself to weld to woodwork i made a air jordan from scratch sewing it together so I feel pretty confident in my ability to figure things out. And my success in this space is attributed to the way that I operate, but I'm an exception. So the work that I've focused on is like how to take, you know, what, I, what I've gleaned from navigating this space and build a replicatable model for people who don't have that work ethic or, you know, skill set or, or network or hustle or, or, you know, all the advantages that I bring to the table. And so the question that I have is related to conversations I've been having recently. I actually was like a, a guest on a TechCrunch hosted space about, and the, I think the title was like, why don't venture capital funds invest in black founders? And so a lot of the research, and, and I think anybody in venture capital knows this, like in 2021, $330 billion was raised in the U.S., and somewhere between 95 and 98.7% of that went to white men. There's a different figures depending on who you ask, but based on PitchBook, book. It's almost all the money. And so there weren't a lot of people who could speak to this from the perspective of, you know, cishet men on that stage. A lot of them didn't want to come up and speak to it. Uh, If you know (laughs) Dell, he was on that stage, and I think I was actually getting DMs saying, like, he's too confrontational. People just didn't want to be bothered. So I'll ask you three, because I assume that you can speak from that perspective. Like, why do you think it is? And not specifically just black people, but why do you think it is that so much of the money in VC goes to cishet white men. Because I have my ideas, and I'm happy to speak to that as well. But I'd like to get your perspective on it.
4: So before I jump off, I have to jump off at 11, uh, or shortly thereafter, I'll talk from, you know, maybe in reverse. Um, so the first thing I'll say is that I just see a significantly higher number of um, you know inbound and warm introductions uh you know call it you, you know, they have white men or, or asian men or men in general um you know so so just a disproportionate amount of the deal flow we see and particularly the warm qualified deal flow that we talk about is um of the population that gets what you, you know, described as, and it's true the majority of funding so why is that happening uh like look i'm a white guy named mike who grew up in connecticut so i like you know went to stanford so i literally fit the stereotype to a T and I'll be the first to admit it. Um, it's, you know, so for me personally, it's no question that it's like a path dependency on my network uh, and, you know, which has developed again, I'm in my early forties over two decades. Um, so, so that's, I mean, that's the literal answer for, for example, why, I, you know, and, and our firm, I believe has, you know, a higher number of investments and in, call it white and Asian um, founders, male founders um, than in, you know, underrepresented founders. We certainly have our share of investments in underrepresented founders and there are a number of fantastic ones, but you know, it's not at the time of evaluating a specific deal. It's not a um, you know, explicit choice, you know, based on you know race background, you name it.
1: Awesome. Uh, Mike, I appreciate that. Mech,
8: I appreciate the question. I am going to pass it on to... Wait, before you go, I thought somebody else was going to chime in because there's three folks up here. But I'll just say in rebuttal to that, like I hear you. I think that's valid. Um, I think it has a, a lot to do with the networks. And I noticed, like, I, I looked at all your profiles. Um, I'm not sure what it means. If I could ask Joe, it says fills access gaps. In, yep. uh, with tech. And so I, I think that's what my work is around now, right? Like it's it's, it's educating people about the, like base level fundamental understanding of what the Web3 space could do, because I don't believe that it's really seeing its full potential. But then bridging networks, because, you know, I had a grant from Unlock Protocol in November of 2021 that actually just went back into their treasury because I couldn't find a developer who had enough knowledge to take that grant. And so it's it's a lack of network for me that I've been, you know coming up against that i realize is like as somebody who is fully capable to like figure things out i still have friction and so i'm focusing a lot more on bridging networks and i'd love to continue this conversation i'm having a later conversation about like specifically racism sexism and bigotry in both tech and venture i think like there are some inherent systemic issues that don't get discussed, that don't get addressed, and that people are benefiting from without really thinking about how they could be contributing to dismantling that. So, if you guys are open, I'll you know shoot you a DM if your DMs are not open. I'll just tweet at you. But I'd love to continue this conversation beyond today.
2: Yeah, and Josh, if you don't mind, I I, I would like to you know I'd talk briefly um, here a few things. It's like Mac. One thing you said that stood out to me: um, you can't help anyone who who doesn't have the drive you do regardless of background or who they are. Now, what you can do is change their perspective on, on one thing in, in general. And this is, this kind of ties into what Mike said. It's, it's tolerance for risk. So it actually just goes straight down the law of eighty 80% of the people are never going to take the job period. period. Just not going to, um, there's a good book to read. It's called the history. Uh, it's called against the gods. It's the, it's, the history of using risk as a tool and how it developed the world versus uh, being stuck. Uh, it goes all the way back to the the Greeks and beyond uh, where they thought your life was faded uh, versus controllable using probability as as a tool to reasonably predict where the future is going. Um, so. It goes back way further than yeah anything yeah. in this country
8: i love that you said that because in the TechCrunch conversation i actually said that we need to reevaluate what risk is because a lot yep. of my thought was like you know if if a founder doesn't have like a lot of black folks who are trying to raise will tell you friends and family rounds are not always available right because if you if you're coming from the fringe of poverty like myself I can't lean on family. I can most likely lean on friends because I've been able to get into friend networks working with people who work at big companies and are vet investing and have lots of money to spare. But generally speaking, folks don't have that capacity. Yep. They don't have trust funds, they don't have safety nets. So they are looked at as risk, but if 90% of all venture fails, all of it's a risk, right? So it's like, how do we reassess what a risk actually looks like? And specifically when you speak to founders who have large communities, I have 30,000 people on one platform and 25 or 26 on this one, and I'm still having conversations with people who are trying to, you know, offer deals, but with predatory equity exchanges, right? And so I'm waiting because I'd like to get to the point where I pass that threshold, where it's, I'm an obvious bet. Like anybody who knows me in this space knows that I'm on to something, but whether or not they're willing to bet on me is different.
2: Yeah. I mean, in, in getting back to Miguel's um, you're getting your hands dirty. It comes with, I, I don't, I don't, I didn't go to Stanford. I don't have that background. I don't have the friends and family. I built that network over the course of the last 20 years. Um, I was not a bettable risk. Um, I am now right um, and i will
8: say that like not to discredit the work that you've done but you did do that with the privilege of being a white guy in america right so that, sure. that, that that's what we we have to really start to talk about because i don't it, this isn't an indictment on anybody right like i think everybody kind of subscribes to whatever they subscribe to and they you know, kind of participate in whatever systems they participate in. But I think it's just about like, can we for once just start to have open conversations about what this is and what the problems are? Because there are people who I think just are kind of so out of proximity of the problems. They're so sort of in their own bubbles that they don't see something as simple as like leveraging your network for somebody. Like you don't even have to write me a check, but like, is there somebody in your network who you think I should be talking to, and what does it look like to open the conversation to to, to do that as a way to help? Do you know what I mean? Well,
1: sure. I, um, I'm sorry. I, I don't want to like completely derail this conversation, it, but I do want to make sure that we're kind of getting to everybody on the stage. Mac, I yeah, really let me let me yeah.
8: let me move up the stage. I, 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 no, no, I, I
1: appreciate. They're, these are great conversations i know so
8: it's for another time it's yeah really yeah. What, yeah so i'll leave D- it at that.
2: dm me I'm, I'm happy to pick this up with you
8: yeah I, like i said i just would love to like start to have more conversations like this so josh i appreciate you everybody take care and in, in a bit Mac, great points to be making there's a lot of
1: room for improvement in the space at all times my hope is that more of these conversations are being had. Um, And I really do appreciate you coming up on stage and asking them because these are tough questions to ask and there are things to be addressed, but we could probably spend hours and hours and hours on this alone. So I am going to push it forward to, I think Pra is up next and then Ronin and then Primalik and then Dolce. Uh, I think we'll kind of have to go pretty quickly here. So if you have like one question, just very quick, uh, and by the way i want to say thank you to mike dudas who had to run at 11. this was something he mentioned prior to the spaces so it will probably run another 15 to 25 more minutes but pra it's up to you
9: thanks josh it's uh the e is for ethereum it's pray thanks for bringing me up i appreciate it um we kind of lost mike i had one question just about product market fit and like how you communicate that in the web3 space um, just you know, especially with dry powder running out of the Web3 space at, in the bear. Um, so I was just looking to get some perspective. How do we communicate product market fit to early stage investors um, for Web3 products, especially in the bear market? If anyone
3: can answer that, thank you.
1: Mikhail, uh, I'll pass that to you.
3: Yeah, I'll jump in. Um, so. You know, you kind of met, Josh, it's a good question, right? Um, Josh, you mentioned before, now it's, uh, so all of kind of Web3 crypto is like about a trillion dollar market size, right? So one of the big things that we look at, right, in investing um, is total addressable market, Tam. So the question, you know, which you asked is a good question. Um, you know, how do you figure out, like, how much money can be extracted from a solution? Um, and being, you know, this space being so nascent, um there's no and I actually you know, the other Mike was talking about like there're no experts in the space right so you got to demonstrate that there is a market for for that um not just you know the, the problems could exist but how what's the scope of the problem okay you got that down then what's the scope of the market um and wh- like what better way to show that other than having a workable solution that is attracting customers at An exponentially higher growth rate. Really, that's probably the best way. You know, if you come to me with a chart showing, you know, how users are signing up to your platform and the growth, um, you know, that's really ultimately the best way. Uh, You know, there's a bunch of kind of other ancillary sort of ways to go around that. But but really, the best is, is that you know. plus, if you can lay it can layer on top, like customer acquisition cost, and you can show that ultimately, you know, you're not going to be break even initially. But, um, you know, at some point, you get to break even, and then you'll know, have fat margins down the line. Um, you know, ideally, that is it. Um, everything else, again, is, is just kind of, you know, back to the same question, like, how do you get there? How do you get to the growth? How do you get to profitability? Um,
6: Yep.
1: No, it's a great answer. Um, pray, does that help you get a better understanding? I think Joe wants to chime in here as well. And then move no, on to the no, next.
9: absolutely. And I was just asking because, you know, for, for a Web2 product, there's different metrics that, you know, investors look for, like your daily active user averages and uh, how much traction you've got. And just like how the Web3 uh, ecosystem is a little bit different where people are – uh, the community is a little bit more volatile with entry and like exit liquidity, and so you know I, I feel like there's a different set of metrics that we as Web three founders have to pay attention to, and how do we communicate that? But Mike, thanks for uh, taking the time to answer my question. I really appreciate it.
2: Yeah, I, I mean his, historically traction, and particularly in a, in in down cycles like now, traction is who's paying for it, right? Um, and you know you should always, but You know, those in in venture hubs have lost track of things like unit metrics and making sure you can rattle that shit off in your sleep, understanding what your metrics are now, what they get to at scale. As Mikhail said, when do you break even? What does it take to get there? Now, in something further out, more nascent or differently put, crapshoot time, which is where Web3 is, it it needs to be a believable path. Um, You know, getting back to, you know, um open AI, long path to dollar one, deep, deep tech investment. However, that that business model uh would be apparent even with the giant air ball throwing up, uh being thrown up till you get to your first dollar of here's the community that we need to raise when we turn on, when we turn on the revenue faucet, here's the expected uptake. Uh you know on, on down the line, and here's what that looks like. And as long as that's believable, um, you know, you can, you can, in, in your, and again, getting back to, is that believable? And are you the one or the the group that's going to make that happen? That's that's when you start seeing traction with investors for something that's, you know, that that far down the curve. But right now, you see you see the VCs in general across most segments. Um, kind of retreating back to line, uh, you know, relying on unit metrics and making sure those are strong.
1: Awesome. Yeah, I mean, I think when I look at things, just making sure you have a good qualitative and quantitative story and combining those two things together can be really powerful. Um, I think we're going to go with Ronan next, then we'll go to Prime Talk and then we'll go to Dulcet.
6: Hey guys, thanks for uh, having this um my uh problem I think is uh, kind of interesting. So um I work with the third largest comic book and graphic novel library. Um and the problem that we're experiencing is so, like we're going to be going to exploit in multiple verticals and film specifically having a tax deduction, but you have to be like in the movie uh, as an investor to get that tax deduction. My question is is what do VCs look at tax incentivized assets as an asset class to invest in to reduce capital gains and in federal income tax? Because what I've been experiencing is that they're not interested in investing in the movies underlying, but they're more interested in investing in uh, the the library and catalog of IP, even though there's a much 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 longer horizon. Uh, for revenue and for the benefit uh, as a whole. So for some reason, I'm I'm in this stuck stuck place that is um, kind of like a you know rock in a hard place. Do I pitch VCs more on the underlying asset exposure that they're going to be getting, or do I do it to the broad spectrum of our platform that we're building that'll have access to every single vertical and movie. Can
1: can you concisely rephrase that really quick for us? Just like one sentence what the question is?
6: Um yeah. Um do VCs prefer the longer horizon asset investing or do they like the upfront revenue generating tax incentivized um investments?
1: So I'll give a quick answer here from my perspective. And I'm phrasing this coming from the co-working and kind of real estate industry where there are some tax advantages. For the most part, from my experiences, uh, VCs that I've seen tend to be most interested in like the geometrical upside, meaning like if you're an early stage, you know, seed, series A, series, maybe even series B, you're looking at how do you get a ten hundred thousand x multiple on your investment now that being said uh vcs aren't the only a lot of times people misunderstand something which is they think all private equity is venture capital and just to give like a perspective on this at the very top of the pyramid is like a private equity, that means any money that's just flowing into investments for the most part. um, A subset of that, which is a small subset, goes into venture capital. um, Those venture capital people typically have agreements with their LPs that specify what they invest, how they invest. um, But you may find with tax advantage investments that it may make more sense to be seeking out People that invest with those type of things in mind. So, just to reverse engineer this, you have to think about who invests in what type of asset classes, and then find those people. Um, You know, for me, when I was raising funding, I found that. Certain types of people were interested in what I was doing and certain weren't. Traditional VCs didn't seem to be super interested in it. Uh, I, I found more success with ultra high net worth private equity investors. It, yeah. So that that would be my answer. And you're going to have to get a feel for who wants what you're selling. And for you, in like a comic book world, I think that you need to be thinking about like, who might find this really cool it, because you'll find this actually in a lot of sin industries that get investments like a nightclub, for example. It, um, some people might invest in a nightclub for financial remuneration, but it might also be really cool to be able to walk into the club and maybe you dropped a million on an investment, but you walk in you're VIP, it, you know, the owners, you cut the like, it, and there's like a form of social currency. So if you have a really big comic book thing, it, There may be some super fans that are like billionaires out there that may want to invest not just for the financial tax benefits, but also for being a part of the IP in the story. Um, I'm going to move it forward to Primal Talk, I think, and then we'll go to Dolce.
9: Hey, Josh, how you doing? Thanks for having me up. Hey,
1: do you find that most founders don't
9: understand blitzscaling? Because i made a 100 angel investments between 2016 and 20. 20- – I'm a minority, by the way, too – between 2016 and 2018, and I had invested in a bunch of minorities, and it seems like a lot of them are afraid to blitzscale even if you explain it to them because they're like, oh, if I run out of money I'll never be able to raise more. And then what happens is when it comes time to raise the next round, the bar had moved up to get a Series A for the metrics, So then the VCs wouldn't fund them. So now they've almost turned into a lifestyle business.
1: Joe, you want to go ahead and answer this? Y- yeah,
2: I, I would say most entrepreneurs don't understand scaling period. Um, or, um, know when to, when to lean in and when those levers should be pulled to scale. It's, 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 it's not a, it's not a natural skill that most people have. It's a learned, um, thing so the the short answer to your question is yes they don't understand.
9: So how would you explain it to them because I tried to explain to them when you think you found the product market market fit you raise some more money to throw fuel on the fire grow some more then raise some more money and grow some more because VCS want to see you know exponential growth so they can get to an exit for their LPS and they don't seem to get it.
2: so uh, yeah so when, when you when you think okay there, there, there's I'll break this down very simply there's three habits that you need to master across four pillars to grow a company. And that is priorities, data, and rhythm. That is making sure your priorities are what they need to be data to support them and rhythm. How often you're talking about it, how often you're checking on them. Um, that gives you, yes, we are ready to scale. Now, scaling is four pillars. It is people, strategy, execution, growth, everything else, or uh, cash. Everything else is noise. So, If you're able to present that plan and you got your shit together in and around those topics and you're hitting those habits on a very regular basis, that's that's how you scale a company. Now, a big part of that, too, is founderism gets in the way. Um, Founderism, for those who've never heard the term, is that entrepreneur that just feels that they need to be involved in everything. You can't do anything that I just talked about unless you can delegate and you can lead people. So that is that is a transition that gets a lot of entrepreneurs stuck at a certain level that they just aren't capable of getting behind through through not necessarily any fault of their own. Uh, you can't get everyone there. That's just the reality of it.
1: That's that's a great way of uh, concisely addressing it. Um, you yeah, know, just really quick as we move on, I, I think. One of the things that many people misunderstand is how incredibly challenging it is to get to an exit. Uh, You know, if you think about it from a statistical standpoint, about one in like a thousand companies out there that goes out to do it is able to raise more than, you know, five million dollars in funding that 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 means, you know, zero point. 1% 1% of companies are able to get to that. Of the companies that get there, it's a very, very, very small fraction of those companies that are able to successfully blitz scale, as, as you describe it, because you need to do a few things simultaneously at once. You need to grow your uh, number of employees, but you need to maintain company culture. You need to spend money, but you need to not run out of money because if you run out of money and you hire people and you blitz scale and then you don't raise the next round, uh, you're you're out of business. And, you know, many, many companies at all different sizes uh, run out of momentum at times. That that was why I was brought in for the fuel additive company in Houston, Texas, was because that company needed to get off the books of the VC firm. Uh, I'm going to pass it to Dolce, 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 whatever.
6: <laughs> You're good. Uh, it always happens. So I appreciate it. My simple, it's going to be simple since we don't have that much time. I just like with relationships and joint ventures coming into web three, do you think entirely trying to convince or convey more in the bear market is easier or harder than it would be in a bull market?
1: Mikhail, what are your thoughts? Bull versus bear market, easier to raise money.
3: I mean, obviously, in the bull market, it's much easier to raise money. Um, having said that, interesting data point is that um, I think a lot more, and this is somewhat um, anecdotal, but I th- it seems that a lot more like legit businesses are built in the times of stress because there are less um, you know, distractions, right? The founders can really kind of buckle down and you know, focus on building stuff. Um without you know all of this other kind of nonsense um, that can get you distracted. So you know, from that point of view, there's just something to think about.
6: So from that stemming off of there, I uh, just have one more question then. So then why do you see so many uh, other firms like Facebook, I mean Meta and Amazon all basically rushing into this not so bull market right now, even though we're still in a bear stage?
3: Those guys, I mean, you know, they, they have also mandates, right? So, you know, cash coming in from operations, you got to invest it somewhere. So, the, you know, the big guys are always going to be, um, you know, investing. It doesn't really matter what, you know, pension fund money. It needs to be invested, right? There's no, like, they can't sit down and say, okay, let's just stop and, like, let's see what happens next week, right? They always have to be putting money to work. I'm talking about, you know, if you look at the kind of the trends and in the totality of, like, the capital that's going into the space, Um but you know, to back to your question, the original question is like, yeah, obviously, when there's a lot of money slushing through the system, it's much easier to go out and because again, more money, more risk taking, right? Uh, for sure, easier to raise money. Um, so yeah, hopefully that answers. It,
2: it. I, I I'd put it as it's, it's it's certainly harder to raise money in in times like this, but it's easier to stand out.
3: For sure, easier to stand out. Yeah, of course, because yeah. um, you know, think about. Everything that's get it's getting tossed out with a sort of, you know, baby with the bathwater, right? Especially in yep. this, um, like, what's been going on towards the end of last year. Um, but you know, alternatively, if it's a legit product that you're working on, you you know, chances are you probably will remain standing because there is a need yep. there for it, right? Yeah, and yeah, sure. if there is a need for it, listen, you know, people are going to be using your product. Um, you can get customers. Uh, you'll be able to survive. So again, yeah. persevere and weather the storm. Um, and that good, does good, separate.
2: Yes. Good companies get investment in all markets. Um, to to Miguel's point, it doesn't stop. It has to go somewhere. These guys all have mandates to place capital. And, and VCs are on a shot clock. They don't They don't get any points by having money left over.
1: These are yep. great points. Uh, we got about five minutes to wrap it up. So I'm going to kind of cut them short on that. I, I do want to thank uh, Mike Dudas for coming out. I know that he had to run at 11. It, he's a busy guy. I want to thank Mikael and Joe. I'm going to pass it to the two of them to have closing remarks and then uh, we'll close out the space.
2: Yeah. Um, you know, thanks for having me, Josh. It's, uh, you know, good to chat with everyone. Yeah. Um, I, I kind of want to want to want to recap, re, reinforcing some advice that that Mikhail gave. Um, if you look at a lot of the actually most of the, the, the companies that we've talked about today, um, founders all had failures. Josh had failures. I've had failures. Um, get your hands dirty. The, the number that the, the group of people that get it right out of the gates and found a company that goes on to be wildly successful is infinitesimally small. Now getting your hands dirty doesn't mean founding a company It means get involved with something that you have a passion for and learn learn what it's like. Um, because as, as Josh mentioned, you're, you're gonna go through some shit. It's not gonna, it's not always gonna be fun. I, I mean even you know this is my fourth venture. Uh, even this, it had its. We we once a few years ago made payroll by ninety seconds. It it gets it gets hairy. So um, get started. That that doesn't necessarily mean go go be a founder right out of the gates. At least first, just just understand it's 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 gonna be a it's gonna be a hell of a journey.
3: Yeah, that's a very good point. I I completely agree. It doesn't necessarily mean you need to start coding right away and start a company, but you know, attach yourself to other people that you can learn from. Um, But one thing I would end this on um, is sort of passion is contagious. Um, The best entrepreneurs are the guys and girls that you see that are really, really excited about what they're doing. Um, They love what they're doing. And, you know, know, at this point, it's, um, you know, I've seen so many pitches that, you can very quickly in like season v. season, I'm by no means seasoned. You know, you go to like some of the bigger guys, they will be able to pick out instantly if an entrepreneur is really passionate and they love what they do versus someone that's detached and they're doing it as kind of like, you know, just a zombie walking through the steps. So if you can find something and it's it's rare that it happens, don't get me wrong, right? Not everyone can do it. Um, it so if you find what you love, and you, know, you really get excited about it. It's going to be contagious, and that will sell itself. I mean, one obviously really good example of it, and I think this is why Elon Musk has been such a success, is because you know you listen to some of these, um, you know, YouTube videos, or you know, you look at some of the presentation that he does. You know, he's not a polished like finance guy. Um, you know, he stutters sometimes, and you know, he like says stupid things sometimes. But like you could tell that he loves what he's doing. And I think, you know, that applies to so many other people that are successful in their space. So, you know, I just encourage you to kind of approach it from from that angle.
1: I think these are really good takes on things. I'm going to close out the space with a few of my thoughts on how I view raising funding. Um, If you're at the seed level, meaning you don't have anything built yet, your story is going to be largely story-driven, meaning what you tell venture capitalists is the story of what you want to create. It's harder to raise money based on a story than it is based on numbers. So if you've done X amount, if you have X amount of users, if you have X, Y amount of revenue, it's going to be a little bit easier. But in the earliest stages of things, you are having an investor invest in you. So many companies out there like you know justin Kahn with twitch uh, michael were you in his class or a different class with justin Kahn?
3: so i was in his class well rather we were in the class together in the first class but uh so twitch it, it, i don't know if i don't remember they got money down the line because their first company was called kiko it was like an online calendar and um you know, obviously, they didn't go anywhere because they got crushed by Google. But yeah, someone t- was talking about like crashing on the couch or whatever. So he used- he was literally crashing on my couch after Kiko got blown up, figuring out what to do, and uh, pretty m- I don't want to say started, you know, Twitch on my couch. But it was like right at the time when he started something else called Justin TV, and that morphed, or rather, Twitch was one of the subsets, um, one of the subset channels on justin.tv but the guy was you know he could have got super smart guy him and Emmett um could have went out and got a job you know at the big company you know making money and not crashing on the couch with some random dudes uh but decided to take the hard route and you know ended up saying selling their comfort like a billion dollars but at the time you know like had nothing so talking about perseverance right
1: yeah, and I think that's really kind of the key thing. You, you know, the, the bet was really made on Justin, it, not on the, the uh, idea that he had. It, and so often things change. It's one of the reasons with Skybrook it, why I want to leave things as open-ended as possible so that we're able to be nimble and malleable and build in the way yeah. that's best for our community. It, a lot of people are pushing, like, well, what's going to happen in three weeks? What's going to As time goes by, we'll evolve, we'll become stronger, we'll become galvanized. And so with that, when I think about things, uh, the biggest thing that I think about if you're out there raising funds is the more you can show integrity, drive, and all-in commitment, the more likely you are to raise funds. And also put yourself in the other person's shoes, meaning if you're looking to raise funds realize every investor has hundreds of pitches coming in every week. And so you can't take it personally. If somebody doesn't respond to you, like you're not looking at a symmetrical balance of a normal relationship. So, you know, when I raised my money and it doesn't mean I know how to do everything, I probably reached out to a thousand people in order to get $7 million. And it ended up being like 10 people that invested in it. So I had like, you know, if I got 10 investors out of a thousand, I had like a 1% hit rate, which might be pretty high. Uh, You know, and I've heard this story from other people that you have to just be unrelenting in your desire to accomplish what you want. And the truth of the matter is, if you don't see this as something you're willing to dedicate your life to, it may not be the right fit. Everyone doesn't have to be a founder. A lot of people might be really, really happy as like a number seven at a company and you're focusing fully on coding because that's what you love and you like a steady salary and you're going to make 300 grand a year and you've got a family of five and you're going to support them or whatever, whatever the math is. So... With that, I, I would just say thank you to everyone who came out as a listener. Thank you to everyone who came up with questions as speakers. It, and uh, you know, thank you to the special guests who came up as well. It, I'm going to wrap the spaces, and we will see you more next week.
3: Thanks, Josh. Pleasure to be here. It was a very exciting conversation. Um,
2: Thanks, Josh. And uh, nice, nice meeting and
0: chatting with everyone.